0: Sometimes life can change permanently and irrevocably in a microsecond. Imagine that you're 11 years old walking home from school with a group of friends and you are hit by a car. You sustain injuries to every part of your body and it's deemed likely that you won't survive. When you come out of it, you are paralyzed from the neck down and fully dependent on a ventilator. Do you imagine that you have what it takes to start moving forward and building your life again? Our guest today is Dr. Brooke Ellison, Associate Professor of Health Policy and Medical Ethics at Stony Brook University and the author of Look Both Ways and Miracles Happen, which was adapted into the Brooke Ellison story, directed by Christopher Reeve. Brooke lived this path and her story applies to all of us. If you've ever been curious about resilience, trauma, and growth after life is turned upside down, you'll want to listen to today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice. Thank you for being here today. I'm very glad that you are. I must remind you that Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about why nobody seems to cover textbooks with brown grocery bags anymore. Okay, on to the show. Today, I have got a great conversation for you. I have as a guest Dr. Brooke Ellison, who serves on the faculty of Stony Brook University, who graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in cognitive neuroscience, She got her master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and her Ph.D. in sociology from Stony Brook University, where she teaches today. Her most recent book, Look Both Ways, details a defining moment of her life, which is the day when she was 11 years old and was hit by a car and her path since. Brooke became a quadriplegic. Her story resonated with me so much. And I don't even know where to begin in telling you the things we covered because I know it's going to resonate with you as well. We talked about resilience and social connection and humanity and what it means to just completely start from scratch, how easy it is to take things for granted, how disability in some ways is a construct that represents obstacles for all of us. To connect with her, check out her website at brookellison.com. That's brook with an E and then Ellison.com. And Look Both Ways is available wherever you like to buy your books. Let's get to it. I learned so much from this conversation. Welcome, Dr. Ellison, to Baggage Check. I am so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you.
1: The pleasure is absolutely all mine. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so I've been able to take a look at your book, Look Both Ways, and there are so many aspects of it that i want to talk about today but first and i know this is the second time that you've written something so personal i was curious how it feels to have your life out there on the written page to have people reading it and really understanding the inner workings of you and your emotional landscape in a way that's quite personal what has that been like
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to be as transparent and as open uh, in Look Both Ways had I not had a number of years of kind of exposure of my life and uh, people kind of uh, inquiring about aspects of who I am. Uh, As you mentioned, Look Both Ways is a very personal book. I talk about things that. I don't think I would have had the... Actually, I found surprising that I had the capacity to talk about and the uh, almost self-resolve to talk about. But um, my life over the course of the past 30 years, or particularly the the past 20 years since I graduated college, um, has been, I guess, peered into. My life has really been on display for many people. So... The, f- the first iteration of that was uh, as a result of the first book that I published when uh, I just graduated from college, so this is some 20 years ago now. And at that point in my life, there was I was graduating from Harvard and um, my graduation generated quite a bit of attention and interest. And shortly after that, I was asked to write a book about my family's experience from the time of my accident way back in 1990 until when I graduated from, from Harvard 10 years later. So my family kind of put our heads together and wrote a chronology, almost like a, a diary of lived experience from the time of my accident until, until 10 years later about you know, experiences we had undergone and you know, just kind of relationships that came into our lives that helped us through some really difficult years um that book ultimately got made into a movie uh directed and produced by christopher reeve um i remember that turn of events quite quite vividly when he called my house and and asked if i wouldn't mind if, if he told my story in the form of a movie and of course how do you say no to a to a question like that i mean i was just totally gobsmacked when he called because I, I remember it so vividly it was shortly after i had graduated in the summer of 2000 his agent called my house and said i have christopher reeve here on the line for you which you oh do you mind if i pass you through and like, <laughs> no,
0: really. do you want to talk to literal superman <laughs> sure i
1: had a crush on him when i was a When I was a kid, so like he wasn't gonna say no to that. Um, And then he asked, "Can I tell your story in the form of a movie?" Um, And of course, like at first, it's just kind of knocked you over a bit. And then I had to think, "Wait a second, like that's you know that's not just a question for me to answer. I have to talk to my family about this because it's going to be their lives on display just as much as my own." So we had a familiar conversation about it, and you talked about you you know. uh, where do the benefits lie? Where you know, where are some things that we need to think about um, a little bit more cautiously? And you know, my family came to the conclusion that we have had a series of experiences that are valuable. people, people who are undergoing levels of difficulty or have experienced hardship that can feel very isolating and feel like you've been distanced from the world. So that was kind of the premise that we went ahead on and thought, you know, this is something that could be quite quite impactful. And that's turned out to be the case. So I, whenever the Brooke Ellison story writes of the film that was based on my initial book, um, it's shown anywhere, it's shown all around the world. So I've, I've heard from people in, you know, in Africa and Australia, right? Just literally all over the world. People share their lives with me. They, they tell me about their experiences and, and different struggles that they've had and, and how they feel like... Parts of our story gives them either a sense of purpose or a new perspective on their lives. And I think that's really, that's been quite, quite powerful for me. So when it came time and in the years since then, I do a lot of talking about my life. Um, I I give speeches and presentations and a lot of writing, introspective writing. So when it came time that I decided to write "Look Both Ways," which was just um, several years ago, actually, right right after my 40th birthday, um, I've, I said, and "This was at a time in my life when I was experiencing a lot of health challenges. Um, I had become very sick with a pressure wound that needed to be treated for quite some time, and my you know, my life was in question." Right, the um, you know, my ability to survive what I was experiencing was in question. I said, I had known that for a while that I wanted to write another book after my first book was published. And then this opportunity came around and I said, you you need to write from the heart. You need to, you've had important experiences that people can learn something from. And it's not just those experiences but the lessons that have been born out of those experiences. And you need to be thoughtful about this. So I kind of squirreled myself away, locked myself away in my bedroom, and that summer just wrote and wrote and wrote and forced myself to be as self-probing as I could possibly be. And talk about things that I did, that I was kind of afraid and felt very vulnerable talking about. Um, Whether it's love and what that means to me or what that means to people with disabilities. My role in my family as kind of the the person with a disability and, and how I understood that role to be different than I understand it now. Mm-hmm. And you're just challenging parts of how people perceive me and perceive disability that I think was different from how I had often talked about my life. You know, often talked about my life in terms of triumph and resilience and strength and hope, and which are all very important. And you know, whenever I talk about disability, those are the kinds of ideas that I want to encapsulated in. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, like, I couldn't talk about those things without talking about the vulnerabilities that I've had to come to terms with. And when I talk about Look Both Ways, I'm not just kind of, I guess, acknowledging the, um, you know, the Being hit by a car aspect of my life, right? Kind of the admonition to get to look both ways before crossing the street, but actually looking at at all parts of your life. And in order to have a full understanding of who you are and where you are in the world and how you've gotten to where you are, you need to have, uh, you need to look in all directions and and see all sides of it. Yeah. And
0: it seems like it's, a never ending path, right? It's not like, okay, so I I wrote these memoirs, I was able to tell my story. And then everything was wrapped up and forevermore. (laughs) So, you know, I'm struck by the fact that when you decided to write Look Both Ways, it sounds like, you know, you were in the midst of another challenge. And I'm sure that the ongoing challenges continue in such a way as they do for all of us, but especially, too, for you, some of the physical challenges that still stem from that accident. And that's not something that you ever are able to rid yourself of. For, <laughs> for listeners that aren't familiar with your story, how would you... Describe your story to them.
1: Sure, sure. But you're absolutely right. Right. So my life is uh, an uh, ever-evolving kind of experience, like all all of our lives are, but um, mine has been very characterized by extreme experiences. Actually, one of the most extreme happened after I I finished writing. Look both ways, unbeknownst to me, actually had thought about possibly putting in an epilogue or some kind of addendum to the book. To capture some of the experiences I've had since then, but I thought we'll leave this and this and then, and then maybe save that for another book, <laughs> we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh gosh, so I guess my story, to our Degree, our lives, our stories—the um, story that has characterized my life—mostly uh, started about 33 years ago. Now, um, I was 11 years old, and uh, I grew growing up here on Long Island, and you're living a very typical suburban childhood, doing extracurricular activities like dancing and soccer, and all these ways like characterized my life and understood my life and it's kind of what made sense to me uh, growing up here with my older sister and my younger brother. Uh, I was walking home from my very first day of junior high school, right? So I just migrated from elementary school to junior high school and um, in so doing had to cross a fairly major highway on Long Island and in the process I was hit by a car so, it was an accident that was severely devastating, just you know, completely catastrophic. And uh, my ability to survive it was very much in question. Uh, so, I damaged onto all parts of my body, cracked my skull open, uh, bit, bit when I landed on the pavement. I bit off about a third of my tongue. and uh, I broke or damaged all of my limbs. I was in cardiac and respiratory arrest when uh, emergency respondents, uh, responders got to the scene of the accident and I was taken to the nearest hospital, which fortunately was only you know, several hundred feet from the scene of my accident. And it was highly questionable as to whether or not I was going to survive. As a matter of fact, so it was actually much more likely... That I wouldn't survive my accident as opposed to to survive it uh, so my parents were told to expect the worst um, and then if I were to survive then I would probably be severely cognitively impaired fortunately neither of those two outcomes came to pass but wow. yeah which was astonishing given the enormity of my of my injuries but I spent seven and a half no a total of nine months in the hospital, six weeks in pediatric intensive care, and then seven and a half months in rehabilitation, just kind of learning to live with a disability, right? Learning to accommodate my life to an existence that I didn't understand, right? Like I didn't know what it was like to um, you know, to live with disability or to try to navigate a world that's not really set up for disability. So this was way back in 1990. So the Americans with Disabilities Act had just been passed the societal perception around disability had not really changed all that much from one of kind of marginalization and exclusion. Nothing that really has migrated all that much since then, but this was really early on in the days of disability advocacy, and I was very much a product of that social thinking. Like, I thought that disability was something to be afraid of or to be distanced from or people with disabilities you know, were not to be included in the world or the ones to be pitied, like all of those things deeply resonated with my understanding of disability and then in turn my life in relation to disability. So that was a kind of a really tenuous and fearful time for me and I didn't know where my life was headed or how things were going to evolve for me. I was very committed, though, to my education, right? So all the time that I had spent doing extracurricular activities, I then dedicated to my education to make sure that that was a path by which I could continue to be active in the world and make up for some of the losses that I had experienced. So that was a major battle in order for me to get back to school after returning home from the hospital. was one one that was more difficult than any one of my family members would have anticipated it took a lot of fighting and convincing that this was the proper setting for me that was, that my presence in the classroom was not going to be disruptive or traumatizing <laughs> to my classmates or so those are some of the things that were being told to me when I, you know, I was just twelve years old at that point, and hearing all of these mm-hmm. things was just devastating. Like, why would that be the case? Why would my friends want to be afraid of me or anything like that? So, mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. a time when I really needed to feel like I was being welcomed and and being integrated back into the into the world, I was being told the opposite. But fortunately, we prevailed, and um, yeah, I went through junior high school and high school, and ultimately was asked to apply to Harvard, which is where I ultimately went to college, and. Um, I studied there. I studied cognitive neuroscience as an undergraduate, and then returned there for my master's in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And um, took that work, took that understanding of myself and my position in the world, and you know, kind of hit the ground running with it and ran for public office at only 27 years old. And then uh, pursued a PhD in sociology, and now I am a professor at Stony Brook University talking about and researching medical ethics, health policy, and applied ethics as it relates to people with disabilities. And also serve as the Vice President for Technology and Innovation at a nonprofit organization called United Spinal, which caters to the needs and um, challenges of like 600,000 people with spinal cord injuries across the country.
0: Oh my goodness. So you're not you're not busy at all. Because, uh, <laughs> uh. I mean, the word remarkable doesn't begin to describe what it must have been, the trajectory from those months in the hospital to actually imagining how much you were ultimately able to thrive. I'm struck by that notion of how jarring emotionally so many aspects of this, of course, must have been. But the idea that maybe your friends and your peers might find your actual presence in the classroom to be scary or traumatic and as you said, you know, you were a product of that culture as well. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it has to do with sort of the the way that folks with disabilities are made to feel like others, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Like you went from a pretty typical kid with peers and friends and everything and all these activities to being a 12-year-old who just by existing was told, well, maybe your existence is a disruption. Right, exactly. Do you have memories of that time, of how you coped with that, how your friends responded or didn't respond, Mm -hmm. or just emotionally, what that was like for you? I sure do. I I remember being
1: discharged from the rehabilitation hospital and being afraid. I remember being afraid that I was going to be leaving a place that offered almost like a cocoon-like existence yeah. where everybody who was around me was had experienced some kind of trauma, some kind of life-altering circumstance, and to be kind of discharged into a world that I knew for your firsthand was not going to see me the way that I saw myself, that was frightening. And then yeah. that fear was kind of reified by the first very first experience I had with with the world and with kind of bureaucracy mm-hmm. in general, trying to return to school and getting some resistance that I I feared I would get, but was hoping that I wouldn't. And like this is this is really Impactful and, and um, jarring for anybody at any age, but when you're 12 years old, when you're just full of some of the anxieties and, and wanting to fit in anyway, like that that was really that was really hard. I think that some of those beliefs came from adults, and um, when I ultimately returned to the classroom, like my friends and my peers, they were less. Uh, I guess less concerned about those ideas than the adults were
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it was difficult and fortunately some of my friends uh, had come to visit me when i was in the hospital they came to see me not everybody felt com- comfortable doing that but a number of them did there was a lot of community support for me and you know, a lot of being kept up to date as to what my progress was. In order for me to even get home, there was a tremendous community outpouring of your know, support and love and uh, resources, right? So the, well, we had to make a lot of modifications to my home, renovations to my home, and that was a completely community-driven process, right? So just friends of our family did all the, re- the reconstruction, right? The day that actually we have videos here in my house, you, know, like, you know, uh, VHS recordings. Uh, the day that my family broke ground and the renovations that that needed to be done, and like my neighbors were all pitching in and like helping to dig the ditch or whatever, or whatever they were doing. Right, so it was just like literally like a scene out of a movie, which actually turns out to be the case <laughs>
0: literally, <laughs> literally, truly, yeah. Exactly how you know, it went,
1: it went down, and yeah. But so that so, so that cushioned the blow a little bit, but. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect and like just trying to trying to internalize an identity around disability that took me a very long time like that was not something that came easily or without tremendous internal struggle to go from just living with disability right that was how I was discharged from rehabilitation as somebody who could learn to live with disability as opposed to somebody who is who is disabled, right? Somebody who could mm-hmm. um, incorporate the identity of being disabled into who she is. And that took a really long time. And I think that there's an important distinction between those two things that we're not just talking about accommodating my life, just like the world needs to accommodate itself to, I guess, offer some kind of modicum of acceptance to disability, right? That was kind of how I was taught to understand my life and rehabilitation. but to change that to feeling proud of who I am and to know that disability is not how it has always been contextualized or described as some source of weakness or uh, a population that is not worthy of our respect or inclusion. I view disability very differently now and I understand disability to be kind of the culmination humanity and resilience at its at its apex right you you need to be strong in ways that i think life doesn't always understand strength you need to be resilient in ways that life doesn't always value resilience and be hopeful in ways that life doesn't always value hope and problem solve on a daily basis because the world is just not designed for the needs that you have be creative and how you approach the problems that you encounter without feeling completely diminished by them so like those are all really important virtues and aspects of the disabled identity that i think don't get nearly enough attention Mm
0: -hmm. just the need for adaptability and problem solving i'm sure just on an hourly if not minute to minute basis for our listeners How was that process to go from having full mobility as a typical 11-year-old to coming home as someone who was quadriplegic and really starting from scratch? Obviously, it sounds like you had a lot of support, but I'm imagining that even the tiniest things that you didn't even think about as an 11-year-old before the accident became suddenly a problem that almost at times could have felt insurmountable. Where did you draw upon the the strength to figure out some of that everyday stuff that the rest of us don't really think about at all and that you might not have thought about
1: before? Right, right, yeah. Well, I remember being in, in the hospital and kind of staring up at the ceiling where I would, at night where I would do a lot of thinking and, you know, feeling frustrated that i didn't value just mundane aspects of life as much as i could have or should have like i didn't place as much attention on you know what it felt like you to rub my fingertips on the carpet and like really remember what that felt like or you know what it felt like to you know to stretch or you know, to do all the things that are that characterize life really in, insignificant things uh and there they are so insignificant that you don't take the time to pay attention to them and when you don't have them it's just like wait a second there's a tremendous mm. sense of loss. So that took that took a while. That took a while, and it becomes quite astounding the number of things in your life on on a daily basis where if you can't do it yourself, you have to ask other people to help you with. And yeah, that's that, that was a hard thing for me to to come to terms with. You know, everything from yeah, you know, deep personal as- you know, impersonal um, aspects of daily life and, and care to you just getting a drink of water right you had to learn and I, I go into some depth uh, about this and, and look both ways about your need to be patient in ways that you know you couldn't have ever imagined having to be patient like waiting even for your next bite of food or waiting for your next breath to come right like all of these things are really really hard and it could it could seem Completely overwhelming, right? It, it could it, when when talked about in this way, I can understand how it would seem completely overwhelming. But in order to get on with my life and in order to move forward, like I had to learn to remove myself from those things that seem overwhelming, right? Like I I couldn't think about any number of those aspects of my life that I had to just abdicate to somebody else because if i if I thought about them on an individual basis it would be completely overwhelming and, and almost defeatist so i had to understand my life in terms of what are the things that i can't do anymore right put those aside and just move forward on the things that i could still do right and that kind of fostered my understanding of hope and what that has meant to me and how I have deconstructed that construct into something that I could operationalize and and put to use in my life. Um, And that was really difficult. That uh, That took a bit of time. But I think up until that point, I tried to return to my life as I had known it as much as I as I could, without thinking about what I had lost, and just focusing on the things that I still had. Whether that was you know, playing with my brother, you know, watching my brother, um, you know, play basketball, or you know, doing crossword puzzles with him, um, you know, spending time with friends, going to movie to the movies with friends, or going to the mall. The mall back in the time when you know, malls were <laughs> something to do. Yes. Um, so I tried to integrate as much of my life as I had known it into my my new existence, right? Not thinking that my life was totally different, but still had vestiges of what it had been.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea of breaking it down (laughs) sounds important. The small types of things rather than, okay, here's the big picture and here's all the stuff that can be totally overwhelming. I mean, your life changed so qualitatively and quantitatively in an instant. But I love that idea of going smaller and saying, you know what? I can do a crossword puzzle with my brother Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, tell him he's wrong on this answer and (laughs) tell him to change it and that kind of thing. And and that interpersonal connection seems so important, too. And I know that one of the themes really that you return to a lot in Look Both Ways is the notion that some of your struggles, though some listeners Mm -hmm. might feel like they're so qualitatively different than their struggles... But some of them might just be a matter of degree, right? Mm -hmm, That those same things that you talked about, the need for being able to problem solve, the need for looking at (laughs) reality and being able one small step at a time to overcome a barrier, the need to be understood by other people for who you actually are. Mm These are fundamentally human struggles that apply across the board. And I think it, it really speaks to the notion that some of the triumphs that you've had really can apply to other people <laughs> who are facing obstacles that don't seem nearly as devastating, but nonetheless require some of the same the same types of psychological, the psychological characteristics to keep going
1: yeah i think i think that's exactly right so i tried to be as forthright about that very idea as i could be uh, in the in the opening pages of the book that when i started writing look both ways i was pretty committed to it not being a book about disability right like i didn't want it to be cast aside as just a book about a specific population because i know irrespective of how important People with disabilities are to the world, like their voices are not necessarily heard as frequently as they could be. But at the same time, I think disability is an important and very obvious representation of the challenges that everybody faces, right? It it forces a level of creativity and strength and problem solving and resilience that I think getting through almost any struggle that we encounter requires. What's interesting I think is when we're experiencing these challenges in our lives, you know, things that are are completely life-altering and difficult to come to terms with, we feel very isolated right? We feel very marginalized and like nobody could possibly understand what we're experiencing. How could the world continue to go on around us as, as it's gone on when we, our lives have been so turned on their heads? That was certainly how I felt at the time of my accident. But what's interesting is that the challenges that we face are really like one of the only universals that humanity faces and we're all going to experience some level of hardship or difficulty that seems like it's going to be too difficult to bear or it's going to be so life-altering that, that our lives thereafter are going to seem, you know, unrecognizable or not at all relevant to how we had typically understood the world, but we can find a path forward, right? Like mm-hmm. disability, you have when you experience a disability or like a, a, an accident or injury like my own, you know, it's either you find a way forward or... You know, you wither and it ceases to exist. And like that was not an option that I was going to be satisfied for my life. So, um, you know, in talking to people about look both ways or about my life over the years, you know, it's very often people who have experienced things that are wildly different from being hit by a car and and being left with quadriplegia, but the kinds of struggles are very much the same, the kinds of internal challenges and, and trying to understand a new identity are very much the same. And the kinds I think skills and toolkits that you need to rely on in order to get to move forward are, are just identical. And like, that's really been exciting. And I I think, there's a sense of commonality in that struggle and in that humanity that I feel very fortunate to be a part of. And I th- I don't know if I would have seen that with such clarity and, and with such a profound um, resonance had I not had the injury that I had. Like, I don't I don't know if I would be you know, out here talking about an ability to overcome difficulty and, and to deal with challenge and how to be resilient and how to be hopeful were it not for the struggle that I faced, right? I think that's a really important aspect of resilience and hope That is very difficult to understand absent of the challenges that we face, right? They're not constructs that just kind of present themselves out of nowhere, but very much often the outcome of the struggles that we undergo. And I feel very fortunate as a result that I've had these on these new insights on how life can be lived.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people listening that say, oh, but she's got something I don't, (laughs) right? For, For her to be able to summon that level of hope, that level of resilience, that level of motivation, energy, perseverance, there are people who might truly be saying to themselves, there's no way that I've got that or even a part of that, right? I mean, your story, there's no doubt. It's so remarkable <laughs> that, and clearly what you have achieved, even had you not had the challenges that, you, would, <laughs> you know, many, many, many people would be looking up to it. You know, I, uh, you know, real mm-hmm. graduate, so Harvard, eh, you know, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But what would you say to folks who say, oh no, 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 there's just something so rare and unique about the way that you were able to find hope you know you're made of stuff that is just so phenomenally extremely different (laughs) than what i've got that you know here i am facing a challenge that is two percent of what you face and i just feel like i don't have it in me i can't see the hope and i'm so fascinated by hope my dissertation was in part on hope and i and i love this construct and you obviously summoned it from such a dark place you found that light and that light really did amazing things so what would you say to somebody who says well you have something that i i don't i don't think that i could follow this example that I don't think that I could summon light mm-hmm. in the darkness Well, thank
1: you for saying that number one thank you for recognizing that I do I appreciate that very much um, I would say that that would be the exact same thing I would say to somebody you know, 33 years ago if somebody had told me that you know I was going to experience a, you know, a devastating accident that would leave me um, you know, quadriplegic on you know, the ventilator um, I would say those very same things you, I, I don't have the wherewithal I don't have the strength or um the self-confidence or whatever it takes the grit in order to to move forward with that i i I think that is often how we view challenge in our lives it's going to seem insurmountable but we can't yeah we can find a way forward and that's not to say that everybody does right we all know that there are some people who who don't or can't or feel like there's the struggles in life are, are too much to bear and of course you know I, I understand that but I also believe very strongly that there is a path forward right like I, I never would have imagined living as much of my life from the vantage point of a wheelchair right and so, I, I, so I teach medical ethics and I often actually every semester I ask my students you know so we, do we talk about many different you know, classic cases in medical ethics where people who have undergone devastating diseases or or diagnoses feel like their lives are over so I have a conversation almost like a thought experiment with my students asking about like what would for them would constitute a life not worth living and they say things like oh if I were on med- if I were connected to tubes and you know to tube machines or if I I couldn't do the things that I always that I think are important in my life, or if I were dependent on my family to, Care for me like all of these things would make their lives not you're not worth living. And then over the course of the semester, and right, I share different parts of my life and experiences that I've undergone, and ways I've I've lived my life, and you know, how I think the conversation around disability and around ethics needs to be modified. So we're not always thinking in those terms. Like by the end of the semester, they think about things very differently, right? And that not only can we find the resilience and the strength to continue with our lives. And if we find, we look for avenues of continued purpose that might be different from what we had originally anticipated for our lives, but are no less important and valuable. And then kind of helping to create a society in which people don't feel like they are unmoored or without any kind of connection to reality when they undergo these life-altering situations whether it is disability or some kind of diagnosis or something completely different from that like if we have a strong social support network Mm -hmm. that i think we don't often give enough attention to then it makes the shouldering of these kinds of experiences that much easier and i I don't think that we talk about that nearly enough like i don't think we have built a society or a community where we feel like we can talk about the struggles that we encounter, how we need each other, why we live in a very kind of self-reliant based orientation to how we get to where we are. And I think disability is a very profound example of how that really needs to to be rethought.
0: People with
1: disabilities are very much the product of the relationships with those they have, and that should not be thought of as a weakness or something that is aberrant but something that is fundamental to the human experience
0: yes oh there's so much there and what brings to mind it, it brings to mind loneliness when mm-hmm. you talk about the social sure. support need and in fact the Surgeon General yeah, just, just yesterday said, oh, yes, right. no, just, It just, came yes, out okay, and
1: finally right
0: <laughs> yes yes great Britain had declared loneliness mm-hmm. and epidemic several years ago and I know our surgeon general has done a lot of work on, on loneliness over mm-hmm. the years and is and an expert in, and it's always been, it, relationships has always been one of my areas of, of interest and passion and expertise. And I was so glad to see the U S government come out and say, this is a crisis mm-hmm. scenario, yep. right? People feel more disconnected now than ever before. Mm-hmm. Loneliness levels have been rising precipitously for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. the role of technology, the role of the pandemic, they can all be, seen, Mm -hmm. right? And I think, just as you said, we don't talk about the role of social support nearly enough how fundamentally crucial it is Mm -hmm. for physical and emotional health, that it is not a luxury, right? It is as important as flossing your teeth. You know, the data says if you are lonely, that's equivalent to being a heavy smoker in terms of the health effects, Mm -hmm. the longevity effects. Exactly. And so the social support and the way that you speak of how the community came and rallied for you, you know, of course, there were snafus like, oh, what about the classroom is doable and all of that. But but the idea of of refitting your house to be able to accommodate your needs and the idea of friends visiting you in the hospital, even if they were a little scared, even if their parents didn't really know what to say and things like that. Coming together, that role of social support is such a forgotten factor, I think, by a lot of people. So I'm so glad to hear you (laughs) bring it up. The other thing that really struck me in listening is Just how much we are bad at predicting how something would affect us. Mm -hmm. And I know that the happiness research talks about that in the opposite way, right? What we think would make us happy turns out to not really be the case what you... You know, what you're speaking of is like, okay, I would have assumed that this would be so fundamentally unmooring for me, too. You know, when I was 10 or 11 years old, I would have assumed I couldn't persevere. I couldn't I couldn't be able to overcome such a scenario. And in fact, obviously, that was incredibly <laughs> wrong. And I, I love what you're pointing out to our listeners that many of us might be saying, oh, well, I just don't have something in me. Or if this happened, I would just not be able to find a way. And I, I work with a lot of people suffering from grief and loss, and I think they have a very <laughs> (laughs) very similar experience. They say, I could have never imagined that I could start to move through a loss this devastating. And yet I am. I'm not getting over it. I'm not moving on, but I am moving through it. I'm carrying it with me. I am incorporating it into my life. I'm growing bigger around it. And had somebody asked me two years ago if I'd be able to cope with such a loss, I would have said, no chance. Where would I even begin? But I am putting one hour, right. one hour at a time as my agenda, and I'm able to just hour by hour do the next thing that I need to do. Exactly. To and you actually have to
1: understand it in that really kind of step-by-step step way, right? it doesn't happen overnight, right? There's a transition from from trauma to ongoing struggle to acceptance to ultimately your resolution that that takes time
0: it doesn't happen right away and
1: there is grief that comes along with experiencing loss but that grief is not indefinite right Mm -hmm. and um that was something that was really important for me to understand and even to this day right i i still there are days where i grieve what i have lost or what i you know things that i would like to be doing that i can't do and that's just part of humanity that's part of, of living life right we all do that but i think also right, right, we tend to have visions for our lives about what they ought to be or how they they, they would have been and i do this I don't, I don't know if there's any day in my life where i don't think about oh what would have been you if i didn't cross the street if i didn't cross nichols road that day what would my life had been like as if that is any more real or any truer a life than the life that i live right now or any more valuable a life than the life i live right now and i think we do ourselves a tremendous disservice when we think about our lives in some idealized yes. term as you know this this is the right life and the one that we're living is the wrong life and yes. that took me a long time to come to to realize
0: mm-hmm. yeah like i always tell my clients when they're sort of ruminating on these alternate paths, it's like you know history doesn't have a control group right right exactly. like had you had you not crossed the the street that yeah, day they
1: still counterfactual yeah Uh
0: (laughs) what would have happened. And, you know, I think so many times the need to undo something in our past is so visceral because it can make the world make sense. Right. Right. It's like, well, if this didn't happen, then everything would make sense. And I imagine something like the accident that you suffered that's so profoundly extreme because it's literally something happening out of the blue in a split second that was completely unpredictable, unforeseeable. And I think that's so fundamentally scary for people. Mm -hmm. We We would rather make sense of the world and say, well, if I hadn't done this, then everything would have been okay. Or a lot of times what I see is it's easier to blame ourselves or blame other people because then that would make it make sense. Yes, exactly. You know, did, right. did you ever? Yeah, did you ever experience any of that in terms of sort of the self-blaming aspect or the over-focusing on the blame in some other way? Of maybe that makes the world feel more predictable and the world makes more sense if I, you know, if only I hadn't made this decision of doing this, then the world can make sense again. How,
1: Absolutely, how ever, probably every day of my life, or maybe. Twenty-five years after my accident, mm. I think this was the pivotal event. This was the aberration. This was the the inflection point at which my life went wildly awry. And as you said, right, that that makes it manageable. Right, that makes mm. it easier to try to digest. It actually wasn't until I was writing *Look Both Ways* where I thought about this very deeply. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the book. Actually, in, in chapter one where i talk about you know how people can think about my accident and think about you know, all of the trauma to my body in ways that are like very kind of easily quantified or easily talked about because you when you do that it makes it manageable right it, it can help you distance your own self from somebody else's experience right like oh and i talk about this in the book right that there's some likelihood of being hit by a car but uh, you know, in, in this particular instance and in this specific orientation and exactly this way the odds are even more, more much you know much more remote right so it gives it makes it easier for people to make to distance themselves from these things that yes. that we fear and i think the same mm-hmm. thing holds for when we view our lives in terms of these seminal moments that throw things off course right because it makes it easier to 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 view challenges in our lives as unlikely or purely discrete or isolated in nature when that's just not the way life is right it's full of challenges it's all there each day creates some kind of set of experiences that if that those events had happened, your life would have gotten some other course. But to think about all the infinite possibilities that our lives could take would just be overwhelming. So there's not always just one specific instance or so, one specific event that makes our life what it is. It's the culmination of all of these events that make us who we are. And to think about all the different possibilities is just impossible.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Truly impossible. So, this is a strange full circle moment as I feel it because listeners know uh, a couple of months ago we had an interview with Dr. Marianne Gray, the founder of the Hyacinth Fellowship, who unfortunately has recently passed away Mm -hmm. since our interview. Um, And the Hyacinth Fellowship was a supportive community, is a supportive community for those who have unintentionally caused harm. And it strikes me that Dr. Gray's tragedy of of her life as a young adult was that she was driving and a child ran in front of her car and she hit and killed That child, and we had such a moving conversation about being on the other side of that about the shame and the guilt and the trauma of accidentally causing harm. And I can't help but reflect upon just what a complimentary piece this is because we are dealing in this very conversation with being on the other side of such a tragic Mm -hmm. event. Mm -hmm. And so I can't help but wonder, and and listeners should know I got your permission to ask this, but I can't help but wonder what your perspective and emotional relationship has been over the years or was at the time to the idea of the person who hit you or the person themselves and, and what that process has been like for you.
1: Sure. Sure. So, unfortunately, I never had a relationship with the, the gentleman who drove to hit me, and that was not something that I that happened by choice. Just it was just not a relationship that ever came to any kind of fruition. You know, I I have not spent my years feeling resentful or any amount of anger towards him. Um, it was my instance, just an accident and you know, he didn't see me I didn't see him but I think even if that weren't the case even if there was something more nefarious at play like I could not have moved on with my life I don't know if I could be where I am today if I harbored resentment or anger mm-hmm. Um, you know that's kind of placing the the onus of life's events on just a person, right? On, on something that seems tangible when, you know, the kinds of things that happen in our lives are a lot less tangible than that, right? It's often a lot more circumstantial than that. But I'm sure he, the enormity of the circumstances affected him profoundly, just as they they affected the, you know, so I was walking home with about, 12 other friends and you know i was the only one who was injured and i know that they experienced things you know deeply emotionally and, and uh, suffered um you know with a lot of trauma uh after experiencing that even members of my family who were not yeah. you know, directly affected which was everybody you know there's a sense of, a feeling of guilt or um why Brooke and why not anybody else? Write all of these things so that you know, I think we tend to view our struggles in, in isolation, but you know, many people are affected. So I don't know exactly what he had, what his life has been like ever since. But I know full, you know, full well that any accident doesn't just affect one person. That there's a deep struggle that you know that many people experience. We I mean, just like reflecting on my life and knowing ways that I've either inadvertently or sometimes even deliberately hurt people who I love, right? Like, you live with that. That's something that you carry with you for a very long time. um, It's part of humanity, unfortunately. I think I do it. We all do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that speaks so much to just the ripple effects of any event like this and who we tend to focus on as a culture, and then we don't necessarily see the other layers. And I think that's one of the lovely things about the ways that you've told your story is that you take the other layers into account. and you, you know, think, hey, what would my family, think about this being part of their story and how can I be respectful there and also understand their perspective and and what they went through. Because I think so many times our society is set up to say, okay, well, here's the hero of the story and here's the villain of the story. And these people had nothing to do with it (laughs) at all. And it's like, in reality, it's always that interaction. It's always that different perspective you have no doubt you know in sharing your story just given so many people the strength to think about their own challenges and i think that's what you oh, see over you. time as people come to you and maybe <laughs> share your story i know that so much of what we've talked about today is how these lessons can apply to anyone but i want to end on specifically thinking about how all of us can be better advocates for those with disability. And as the numbers of folks affected by disability are continuing to grow, as the stigma still, in some ways, people aren't even aware of the implicit biases that they have, the ways that our society and our structures are set up to be completely, not only discriminatory, but sort of creating a system where we view people as others, Mm -hmm. right? What can the average person listening do in their daily lives to be part of the support, part of the help, part of the moving forward for folks who are living with disabilities and not be part of the problem? Mm -hmm.
1: Right, right. I think that's a really important question. And that's what much of my life is built around right now. So I think. We have often thought of disability and is kind of based in the medical model of disability, or we understand disability to be a diagnosis, right, or something that is medically driven or some kind of medical or physical failure. Um, I understand disability to be very different. From that, and I understand it to be a sociocultural construct that takes into consideration aspects of public policy that we enact or fail to enact social supports that we put into place or don't, uh, the kinds of technology that we innovate, the kinds of environments that we build, right? All of these aspects of social and daily life either further disable or can enable a person, right? So it's not just the physical part of their lives. That's just one part of disability. So that makes disability and the experience of disability really an entire social thing. It's actually just earlier today, nine o'clock today, I taught my last class of the semester and a class uh, that's called uh, Inclusion and in Innovation. And it's uh, what's called a VIP class or a vertically integrated project class. So you take a team of students and work with them almost throughout their entire academic career. So these are students I've been working with for three years, or just a whole bunch of them were graduating. So it's a bit of a melancholy. Uh, day today, um, you know, wishing them farewell, but so all of these students are interested in, in basically like, you know, how to make their future work as either engineers or policymakers or physicians, you're more inclusive of the lives of people with disabilities, and none of them has a disability, at least as far as they have disclosed to me, and they became so deeply immersed in this issue and came to understand the lives of people with disabilities in such a profound way, in such an important way, that it's so inspiring to me. And they, they mm-hmm. did work on ensuring accessibility in a new set of standards when it comes to accessibility for people with disabilities that were looking at the question from the wrong perspective that you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act kind of looks at. Accessibility in terms of mandates and compliance, and like what does a business or an employer or um, even a school district need to do in order to provide you know, the basic modicum of accessibility? Rather than looking at accessibility as an opportunity for everyone, for everyone to be included, and for everybody to learn from one another, like that's a really important distinction. And they got that, right? They understood that. And this was not you know, intuitive knowledge. This was not something that they even felt a personal connection. To you directly. And like that is what I think people should learn about disability is that number one, it affects everybody at some point, and that there are really important ways you can intervene in somebody's life to make it better, to make people feel more included, right? So you all have some position in the world, right? So, you know, open a door to somebody, not necessarily literally, but often, you know, literally and figuratively, right? Give them an opportunity to have a seat at the table and then to get to be a part of a conversation that may have been had with them excluded otherwise, right? Feel like, you know, getting to know somebody with a disability is within everybody's capacity to do, right? Advocate for change in how we represent people with disabilities, either in media or, you know, what have you. Right. There's like a constant uh, lack of representation of people with disabilities in television and movies. And, um, you know, even to this day, we speak disparagingly of people with disabilities, even in, you know, in movies and in television shows like all of this uh, to, to see the, all of that change is going to require more than the advocacy of just people with disabilities alone. It's going to require allyship from everybody, and everybody has a role to play in that, and we should never minimize the role that we play in that conversation and the ability to help change that narrative. When we do, we kind of just you, transfer the, the responsibility over to somebody else, and that may not ever happen. Yeah, you know, Somebody else might not yeah. take up the charge. So um, we all have a role to play in making sure that these kinds of biases that – Society has very much built into the, baked into the cake, should be taken out.
0: Yeah. It feels like it all comes back once again to that idea of connectivity Uh among Uh ourselves. Being able to look at each other in the whole sense of the person Uh Uh and to not wall ourselves off through fear, to not think that, oh, because somebody is, is different, I should stay away right, that's, to that's actually. That's me. That's them. <laughs> yes, yes. To be vulnerable enough to be willing to connect and get the meaningful connection and help create a sense of belongingness mm-hmm. for for all of us.
1: Right, right. And we we don't lose out by doing that, right? We all gain.
0: Yeah, immensely. Well, I know our listeners and I have gained so much thank from this conversation. You. You. Brooke, I appreciate so much you're having taken the oh, time. And you. one more time, yeah, one more time, tell folks where they can get your book, where they can see more of your work. Oh, thank
1: you. Yeah, well, so look my book is Look Both Ways. It's available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. That's how you prefer to buy your, your books. Please, i'd love to hear from you uh, my website is brookellison.com so Brook with an e b-r-o-o-k-e-e-l-l-i-s-o-n .com lots of of avenues of, for engagement there and then on social media all my socials are connected to my website so i'd love to hear f- from you
0: wonderful thank you again so much Brooke. oh
1: thank you it was a pleasure to talk to you
0: it's such a pleasure for me as well Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonior, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts? We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Merity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.